Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 185 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we're breaking down everything that happened in a loaded week for NXT and AEW, both shows giving us very special events. For NXT, it was the second edition of the Great American Bash, basically a takeover-like four-match show that really delivered in every possible way on USA Network that this past Tuesday. For AEW, it was a special episode of Dynamite called Road Rager, the inaugural edition of that event. It was also AEW's return to touring in front of a live crowd in Miami. And again, a two-hour show top to bottom that, in my opinion, is one of the top five that AEW Dynamite has ever given us. AEW also had a huge debut that we're going to talk about and plenty more to discuss as we wade through this 185th episode of Getting Old. But before we get into the nitty gritty, before we sink our teeth into the meat that is this show, you guys know what Getting Over is all about. It's all about Defy. So what you need to go ahead and do is... Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Remember, we are all about the five and head on over to Apple Podcasts to drop a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this damn podcast. Your ratings and reviews help bump us up in those Apple rankings, which gets us in front of more people, gives us more listeners, and hopefully allows us to do a lot more fun things for you in the future. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, to tweet with us live during all four major shows each week, participate in polls, and even join us for live audio that we utilize on Twitter spaces. So please follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. As I said, we have a loaded show for you today. We're going to talk about NXT first, as we always do, AEW second. If you only want to hear about one brand or the other, all you need to do is head on into our episode description and check the timestamps for each brand and you can jump back and forth. But what I can tell you is that we have an absolute load of stuff to talk about for both shows, but really even more so for AEW and the Silver King before he breaks down AEW Dynamite later. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a rant, a positive rant about what we saw from Dynamite Road Rager this week. So stay tuned for all of that coming up in a bit. But as I said, we are going to start with NXT, the great American bash. Before we get into the matches, I briefly wanted to discuss the video package that opened the show. It was exceptionally well done, featuring Dusty Rhodes doing a voiceover, followed by recaps of the storylines to basically quickly preview every match on the card. The set design with a dismembered Statue of Liberty, which was old. It was the one from the WWE warehouse that's been used previously, I believe, at the WrestleMania in New York, um, you know, probably 15 years ago or so. That was part of the set. It also had the red, white, and blue ropes and all the other design elements that made the show feel special. NXT, the one thing they really do right is for these special TV show events, but particularly the holiday episodes, Great American Bash and Halloween Havoc, they do a great job 
nailing the presentation from an aesthetic perspective. And I love the way they treat the title matches in NXT as something special. They darken the lights. They shine the spotlight on the competitors. They officially, you know, announce the battle with the two teams or, or two people facing off. Just everything about the presentation that NXT has given us from the move to the Capitol Wrestling Center, they've done a great job. But that doesn't really change the fact that the Capitol Wrestling Center really needs to be done away with for numerous reasons. And I could go off on a whole rant about the crowd and especially the people in the front row on the hard cam side and the way they cheer and boo people. But they need more fans in a venue. They need the space and depth that came with Full Sail. And if they're not going to go back to Full Sail, then they need to at least consider doing some type of touring schedule, maybe just within like Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and Louisiana, like the Southern area or something like that. Because the CWC, while it did a great job for WWE, for NXT in particular, during the pandemic, with what is going to be happening on SmackDown Raw and AEW touring in front of fans, the NXT product is just going to really pale in comparison from an aesthetic standpoint by keeping it there. But again, credit where it's due because the set of Great American Bash and the design of the entire atmosphere, it really did make the show feel special. And credit to the crowd, who I did have problems with at times during the broadcast. But the truth is, from top to bottom, over the two hours, they were high energy, they were in a great mood, and they really made Great American Bash feel special in a way that they did not for NXT TakeOver in your house. So we do have to give them a little bit of credit in that regard. So with that out of the way, let's move on to the show itself. And we'll start with the main event, which clearly needs to be the first thing we talk about, Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly, the rematch. So Cole dominated for a large part early until O'Reilly hit two double underhook suplexes, plus a double underhook DDT for a near fall. Then he snapped after Cole talked trash, which Cole used to get up on him after O'Reilly did the Bret Hart turnbuckle spot, which I thought was a really nice homage to the hitman. The fans were all in with Cole, and they were actually booing O'Reilly at parts. It was distracting. That's kind of what I mentioned earlier. The fans, despite having high energy the entire show, there were parts where they purposely seemed to try to counter the booking, which is always a little bit frustrating, especially when it's a very small audience. Nevertheless, Cole hit a Shining Wizard for a near fall. O'Reilly caught and countered a super kick into a half-dragon suplex bridge for another near fall. Cole locked in the figure four, but O'Reilly did a great reversal into a heel hook. Cole then hit a Panama Sunrise off the ring apron at ringside, but O'Reilly got his foot on the bottom rope. O'Reilly then came back with a brain buster, but he missed the flying knee to the back of the head, and Cole caught him with a last shot for a fantastic 2.9 false finish. O'Reilly countered another Panama Sunrise with a knee to the chest, but he used his injured knee, which gave Cole an opening to hit another Panama Sunrise and the last shot in succession for the clean one, two, three. Now, this did start slow, but it picked up massively over the final 10 minutes. And in total, this got 25 minutes. The crowd was incredible for the finish. And in the end, it was a straight banger of a match, which I'm going honestly 4.5 stars and an A. That may be a quarter star too high, uh, but man, this thing... I loved it, and the finish was just so great that it took it over the top for me a little bit. They were both fantastic selling injured knees. The single false finish was a legitimate surprise, and it really amped up the excitement 
and anticipation for the actual finish to the match. The knee factoring into Cole's win protected O'Reilly, while Cole got the necessary and expected W that we talked about to force what is surely going to be a rubber match at the next takeover. I certainly don't hate that I've nailed the booking of the feud to this point, and now if they actually follow through and give me the loser leaves town stipulation that we've been talking about on this podcast for months now, then the prophecy of the Silver King will be fulfilled. What is so exciting is you know and could witness in this match that both of them left plenty in the tank for a third match, which is probably going to have a five-star floor by the time we even get there. This was just an excellent main of match from start to finish, top to bottom. I loved it. It was the match of the week without a doubt to this point. And honestly, I'm even more excited now for the conclusion to the trilogy after getting this totally clean match that I think a lot of people, myself included, thought, hey, you know, maybe there should be a stipulation here of some kind. No, it made sense that it was super clean because now you have a situation where O'Reilly is going to be pissed. Cole's going to be able to hang this over his head and it's going to result in a pretty clear trilogy with what should be a blow-off stipulation of some legitimate means. I don't know if it'll be loser leaves town, but that's what I've thought has been the booking the entire time. So this was a great main event and NXT deserves a lot of credit for how well it came off. Another big storyline that happened during the show was Karrion Cross and Johnny Gargano having a confrontation with William Regal and Samoa Joe standing between them in the ring. Gargano told Cross that he sucked and that Gargano lived rent-free in his head. Cross said he woke up every morning with three goals. Never lose the NXT title, main event WrestleMania, and become the WWE champion. And that was obviously interesting. Cross said Gargano's technical ability won't work on him because it's not a Marvel movie, but it's real life. He said Gargano wears Candice LeRae's jeans, which Johnny smartly turned around to say Cross couldn't even lace her boots. It was a great line. Cross tried to fight, but Joe stared him down and Regal announced that the title would be on the line next week with Joe as the special guest referee. Joe then gave a warning not to provoke him later in the show. Now, this was a really nice segment and Gargano showed a ton of confidence on the mic, but the whole thing was a bit repetitive with what we saw from them last week. Cross's line about WWE, it seemed to be a total giveaway. A scenario exists where Joe gets provoked and chokes out Cross, which leaves the door open for Gargano to hit a bunch of super kicks and his finishers. And that is a plausible finish and a plausible way for Cross to drop the NXT title. But if it's me, having Cross lose the championship that way would be a rough booking, better served for something that would happen on Raw or SmackDown, not really NXT. Also, it fails to get someone over as a means of taking the title off him. If you're going to have this guy no-sell everything forever, and you're going to have him basically be an unbeatable champion, who just beat four other dudes, by the way, in a fatal five-way match, Gargano included, then having him lose because a guy who's not even an active wrestler chokes him out, and then Gargano just takes advantage of it, would be extremely weak, in my opinion, even if it's exciting in the moment. For those reasons, I think and somewhat hope that that line about WrestleMania and WWE was purposely added as a swerve. So I will just ahead of next week's show, pick Cross to retain the title until he finally drops it SummerSlam weekend at TakeOver 
presumably then getting called up to the WWE main roster, either that following Monday on Raw or the next Friday on SmackDown. That's my guess. I think it's more of a hope than anything else. But either way, I am excited for the Cross Gargano match, and they have done a pretty good job building it up. Now, the show opened with a tag team championship on the line, MSK defending against Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher. No surprise at all that this was the kickoff match. The intensity was dialed all the way up from the opening bell throughout the entire match. Despite the crowd again booing MSK for no reason whatsoever, as I said, it did a great job staying loud the entire time. Thatcher kicked out at one after the still unnamed push moonsault move that MSK uses. Thatcher accidentally hit Ciampa with a European uppercut when Wesley dodged him. Lee then hit the 619 on Thatcher around the ring post in a really cool spot. Champa caught Lee flipping with a basement dropkick and followed it up with a backbreaker for a near fall, and that sent the crowd into a frenzy. MSK then teamed up for a senton bomb and a flying corkscrew, but Thatcher broke the fall. Champa hit the fairy tale ending on Lee, and Carter broke an ankle lock submission by Thatcher. Lee then caught Thatcher with an inside cradle for the win. This was a hell of a match. Nonstop action throughout. Both teams came out of it looking good, and this is a paradigm of what I always talk about on the WWE main roster. An inside cradle or a pinning combination is infinitely better and a far more palatable way to finish a match than a simple roll-up. This was a great match. It was not top tier. It probably could have used another 10 minutes or so to go truly to the next level. If it was on a takeover and it was given that extra time, it would have the potential to go 4.5 4.5 star, 4.75 star match because these teams are just so exciting and the contrast in styles was fantastic. But it was a ton of fun to watch and the right team won. So I'm going to go with four stars and an A minus here. It was just a very, very exciting, fun opener to a special show like the Great American Bash. We had the million dollar championship on the line, LA Knight against Cameron Grimes. The stipulation here, of course, is that if Grimes lost, he would become Knight's butler. Grimes hit a Spanish crossbody. Knight later pounced on a high-risk move for a superplex and brought the title into the ring. There were some pinning counters, and Grimes hit a poison runner for a 2.8. They wound up outside with the million-dollar championship on the ground, and Knight DDT'd Grimes right into it and then pushed it under the ring without the referee seeing. Grimes literally slid into the ring at 9.99, the last hundredth of a second before a countout, but he was out on his feet wobbly and Knight hit the BFT, his finisher for the win. Now this went exactly as we discussed last week. And you know, we always say on this podcast, sometimes predictable things are good. And the truth is you don't make a Butler stipulation for a match like this with a comedy character and not follow through with it. So we knew the direction that they were going to go. And XT was really smart putting this second on the card because it was the lesser of the four matches by a mile. The finish was smart. So I'll give it bonus points, I guess, maybe at like, I don't know, 3.25 stars and a B or something like that. But it wasn't anything spectacular by any means. Knight's trash talk after the match was actually better than anything he did during the match itself. And it was ultimately a step backwards for LA Knight in my eyes from the last three weeks or so where I've started to kind of say that he's growing on me. That wasn't really the case this week. I thought he did take a step back. Now, of course, the comedy of Grimes being Knight's Butler, that's what we're going to see going forward. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. 
And at the end, the expectation is that Grimes eventually, after being in the Virgil role, takes the title off night. It's something nice for the mid card and unique for these two guys to do. But it does kind of feel like something's been lost with Cameron Grimes. He was really hot running with this new gimmick. And to kind of cool him off so much by having him lose twice tonight, it does bring him down. But we will see if NXT builds him back up over the course of this storyline and gets him super hot again when he eventually does take the million dollar championship. Now, the fourth and really final match to discuss on the show was the Women's Tag Team Championship, the way defending against Io Shirai and Zoe Stark. Shirai and Stark are so talented that it looked like they'd been tagging together for years. Candice LeRae caught Shirai in the Gargano escape, which was a really cool spot, while Indy Hartwell simultaneously put Stark in silence, which is Dexter Loomis's submission move. But both challengers broke out. It was just really smart. I love the way they did it. The lights randomly went out. And then the battery that we've been seeing recently charged to 100% after it went to 91 earlier in the night. Tegan Ox appeared on stage, which distracted Larray. Shirai dropkicked Hartwell into Larray, and Stark took out Hartwell with a 360 spinning knee for the title change. Knox then attacked Larray, and they both ran out of the CWC. So look, I'm happy for Shirai and Stark, two of my favorite women's wrestlers right now. But this was massively disappointing. The match was not particularly entertaining. Shirai and Stark shouldn't need a distraction to beat the way. The finish itself was terribly done and really clunky. And on top of it all, these titles have existed for four months and already there have been four champions. That's WWE main roster booking. That is not what we expect from NXT. And the latest champions in Shirai and Stark are a completely thrown together team that has no basis or any reason to actually be the champions. If I've said it once, I've said it a dozen times now. They never should have created a second set of women's tag team titles. They should have just let the WWE ones rotate between all three rosters as they were supposed to from the very start. It was actually conceptualized properly in the beginning. Creative just actually never executed on the promise. I don't even have a grade for this match, which is a shocker given the immense talent of the women in it. I thought it was gonna be maybe the second best match on the show. Instead, it was third or fourth with the Million Dollar Championship. You can kind of go back and forth between which one you liked more. I'm also thrilled, I should say, that Tegan Knox is back. But her return was completely flat and lackluster because of the booking. They turn the lights off, they turn them back on, she's on the ramp. There's no music. There's really nothing to get you excited. I just wish they had done this entire thing differently. I almost wish as if the way had cheated to win the match and then the lights go out, all that happens, music hits, Tegan Knox shows up and attacks Candice LeRae and maybe Tegan finds a tag team partner. They start feuding with the way and Tegan and that partner end up being the ones to take the titles off Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell. That would have been the booking that I'd go with, not just throwing the titles on Io Shirai and Zoe Stark for really no reason whatsoever. The best parts of the match were Hartwell locking in silence and Dexter Loomis carrying her away from the ring after the commercial break. So it's just kind of tough to be that positive about this when the NXT women's division is so damn good and they are nails. They bat a thousand on booking the women's division. This just was not done well in my eyes. And I say all of this, despite the fact that I'm kind of overlooking 
Zoe Stark just won her first title in WWE at age 27, a couple months after she debuted. So it's really great for her as well. I just really wish NXT had done this better. And there's so many ways that I've already mentioned that they could have done it better. Now, there were a couple more things on the show. We had Raquel Gonzalez and Dakota Kai cut a promo before the tag team match, basically threatening the whole division, but particularly Shotzi Blackheart and Ember Moon. Then you had Tony Storm, who was angry backstage that Gonzalez was focused on Blackheart when she should be defending the title against Storm. Then Tony said that uh, Saray's challenge from last week was nice and all, but she denied it because Saray only got big in Japan after Storm left, which is kind of true, but not really cause and effect. There's really nothing to say on this other than Storm should beat Saray if and when that match happens because Storm needs the win and Saray at this point is still kind of a neophyte in NXT and she can easily take a loss. And we also had a hit row cipher with Ashanti the Adonis on the ones and twos while the other three wrapped. There's no way for me to really break down the entire thing other than to just like repeat the lyrics, which I'm not gonna do. So I'll just say that it was hot as hell. Hit Row, after they did the cypher, which is supposed to be a little bit more of a freestyle, but really wasn't, then wrapped their entrance music in the ring. And it felt like Hit Row was kind of taking over the entire show. Did the segment go on too long? Yes, it did. They didn't really need to wrap their song after doing the cypher. But it's not like they're going to do this frequently. So I was fine kind of indulging the moment after a championship win. I'd have preferred a promo by Swerve after the cypher, considering he's the new champion, that would have hit better. But this just felt fresh and different and so unapologetic, which is exactly what Hit Row needs to be. It was a big win for me. The CWC didn't really respond to it the way it should have, but this was just something totally unique and different on a wrestling show. It's not R-Truth rapping his theme song or John Cena cutting a freestyle or Max Caster in AEW doing his you know, funny comedy type of lyrics that are meant to prop the crowd. It's really just Hit Row being unapologetically themselves. And that is not something you really see in wrestling. And I thought it was great and fresh and unique to see in NXT. So I'm still all in on Hit Row. Yeah, maybe it could have been shorter. Other than that, I don't really know what criticisms there are. I loved it. Kushida also cut a kind of bilingual uh, taped promo saying, He's proud to be Cruiserweight Champion and he's ready for Diamond Mine or any other challenger. There was nothing really to take away from it. And then lastly here, they did announce the eight participants in the new NXT breakout tournament. They are Trey Baxter, Carmelo Hayes, who we've seen on TV in a bunch of really good matches recently, Andre Chase, who won a qualifier last Friday on 205 Live, Josh Briggs, who was the final Evolve Champion, who will win a qualifier this coming Friday on 205 Live. And I know I don't give spoilers on this show normally, but they already announced it on NXT. So I can't imagine many of you watch 205. So excuse me on this one, okay? We also got Ikemen Jiro, who was brought over from Japan. Joe Gacy, who's a former CZW champion. He won a qualifier last Friday. Odyssey Jones, who is one of the best wrestling names of all time. Something that could truly work in any era. He's going to win a qualifier on 205 Live this Friday. And then form, finally, Duke Hudson, the former Brendan Vink, who had a short call-up last year, along with the guy who eventually became Slapjack, and then got sent back down, and we haven't seen him since. He is re-debuting as Duke Hudson. Now, there were two qualifying matches on 205 Live. I did write down notes for them. 
I'm going to run through them super, super quick just because I did it. And I guess I'll do it again in this 205 Live as well. The first match was Andre Chase against Guru Raj. Chase reminded me of like Tom Green for some reason. This match was slow, a lot of mat wrestling. He had a somersault flying cutter from the ring apron inside the ring, which that should have been the finisher, but instead he just won after a normal suplex. That felt in every way like an indie match, and I was really surprised to see Chase in the tournament. We also got Desmond Troy against Joe Gacy in another qualifier. Troy's strength and athleticism were impressive. He had a Northern Lights suplex bridge for a near fall, and then three deadlift gut wrench slams for another. Gacy hit a Uranagi and a handspring lariat, and he got the win. I just was disappointed to not see Troy qualify for this, given that he's been in NXT in the Performance Center longer, and Gacy, candidly, still needs a lot of seasoning. So I was just surprised that Troy wasn't one of these people. So that is really it breaking down the show. Outside of the Women's Tag Team Championship match and the decision to change the titles, this was another fantastic NXT episode. They've been crushing it recently, and they delivered with another special event that does really get me excited for Halloween Havoc, which by the way, isn't that far off at this point. It's only like three months away. It's gonna be really interesting to see how the title scenes refresh starting next week, especially if Johnny Gargano loses to Karrion Cross, because new challenges are needed for every single title, except the cruiserweight and I guess the men's tag team, given that we presume Grizzled Young Veterans are going to be the next challengers. Anyway, this was another great show from top to bottom. It had a lot of competition going up against not only game one of the NBA finals, but the match, the special golf event that had uh, Phil Mickelson, Bryson DeChambeau, Aaron Rodgers, and Tom Brady. I actually watched it simultaneously along with NXT. There was a lot of ratings competition, but it was ultimately a very good show. They delivered. I'm guessing the rating won't be what they expected it to be, but nevertheless, NXT should be proud of the program they put on Tuesday. Now, let's move on to AEW Dynamite Road Rager. And before we get into the episode, I want to do a reset for any longtime listeners and provide some insight to any new listeners, what my perspective has been on AEW and what it is going to be on AEW going forward. And I want you to stick with me through this thing. Tony Khan, Cody Rhodes, and company, they've done a great job from the onset of AEW making fans believe the brand exists for them, that the entire thing has been created to make the fans happy and give the fans a great wrestling product. The gimmick is that Tony is a longtime wrestling fan and a subscriber to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter since he was a child. Cody is the son of Dusty Rhodes, and they just want to make wrestling for the fans. But the truth, and this has been the truth from the day the company was announced, is that AEW exists not for the fans, but to make money by filling a gaping hole in the industry for a true competitor to WWE that has not existed since WCW went under. But because AEW repeats it so often that it's a creation for the fans, the fans have bought into that concept and they frequently believe that everything AEW does is perfect unless it's blatantly terrible, such as the ending of the exploding barbed wire deathmatch or the Matt Hardy concussion situation, things like that. But the truth is, and always has been, that AEW is not perfect. So on this show, the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, when I break down AEW each week, I treat it exactly like I do WWE or any other wrestling company. I criticize and praise AEW the same way I do Raw or SmackDown 
or NXT. We discuss why the good stuff is good, and we discuss why the bad stuff is bad. And all of that actually came at the beginning with grading AEW on a bit of a curve for the first year because it was brand new and a lot of people involved in the company were still learning. Now, some of you as listeners and maybe even former listeners took that as me being too critical of AEW and therefore being quote unquote biased towards WWE. When the truth is that I was just treating it equally, which is really the goal. What AEW should want is to be praised and criticized on the same plane as the biggest wrestling company in the world. Well, now we are two years into AEW. There's no more curve and the pandemic is over from a wrestling standpoint. Obviously, it's still going on. Get vaccinated, wear your masks when appropriate, blah, blah, blah. But it's back to touring again. And I've been particularly critical recently about the shows that we've gotten over the last month. Because truthfully, AEW's really deserved it. There were some good wrestling matches, no doubt, but the shows didn't really capture my attention, and a couple of them were straight up bad. Not last week, but a couple weeks before were pretty damn bad. The episode that ended with a Dustin Rhodes bull rope match was a really bad show. Wednesday night, this Wednesday night on AEW Dynamite was the exact opposite of last month. It was a fantastic show and possibly one of the five best editions of AEW Dynamite ever. And I say that despite the fact that I didn't particularly like any of the matches themselves. What we got from AEW on Wednesday was two hours of consistent, entertaining wrestling television. Every match and segment was a little bit different. There was a huge surprise, an in-ring debut, an out-of-nowhere match announcement, a main event feud developing, a co-main event feud developing, great promo work, a mainstream appearance, and a championship match to end the show. It was as jam-packed a two hours of a wrestling television show that I can remember. And even if I didn't love the matches, there was so much else to keep me entertained and get me excited to do this show for you today. And that is what I want out of wrestling. I think that's what we all want out of wrestling. AEW on Wednesday, it didn't put on the best in-ring show of the week. That honor, deservingly so, goes to NXT, which simply had the two best wrestling matches of the week. But what AEW did was it put on the best wrestling show. It put on an episode that succeeded where WWE so frequently fails by being the same monotonous, repetitive shit week after week. And even more important than this Wednesday's episode being great is that I believe next week's Dynamite, the first night of Fighter Fest, is completely different. Not only are there no rematches, I don't think there's a single wrestler booked to compete on that show who fought this week at Road Rager. Now, I don't expect AEW to give us dynamites like this every week because you're not going to have surprise debuts and situations like what came together this Wednesday. But if you got half the storylines plus the top tier wrestling that AEW usually delivers and you put all of that together, you're going to be in the running for top brand, top show, basically every single week. So that is why I enjoyed AEW, Dynamite, Road Rager so much this week. And I wanted to kind of reset everyone's expectations from what you're gonna get talking about AEW on this show. 
We are going to be critical of the product because we are critical of every product. That is what this show is about. Proper praise and proper criticism. But doing so does not mean we are against WWE or we are against AEW. It just means that we're looking at a television program and a wrestling brand and we're saying, this is what's working. This is what doesn't. And on this particular Wednesday night for AEW Dynamite, a lot of it worked. Almost every single thing on that show worked. And we're going to break it down for you right now. Now let's kick off our discussion about Dynamite Road Rager with the opening match and really the biggest news that came out of the entire show. We had Cody Rhodes versus QT Marshall in the opener. It was a strap match. Cody got a nice ovation. He was dressed like he was in the Continental Army. They went with the four corners rules. Dustin Rhodes ran in like right away and fought Aaron Solo. QT bladed. Shockingly, Cody did not. The lights randomly went out a minute later. And we're all like wondering, oh, technical difficulty. That's super weird. QT reversed a Hurricane Rana into an avalanche powerbomb in the spot of the match for me. He also had a diamond cutter. QT then spit in Cody's face and Cody hit three consecutive crossroads before touching all four corners for the win. I'm sure there's people who liked this match. I'm not one of them, at least not as an opening match. If it was midway through the show, it probably would have been okay and hit better. It just really, for me, lacked any excitement, and it was entirely predictable. And I just hope that it mercifully ends the feud with QT Marshall, because I really can't take it anymore. And based on developments that we got, which I'm going to talk about right now, I do believe it is the end of that feud. So later in the show, I think over an hour later, Arn Anderson's in the ring, randomly for an unknown reason, which didn't really make much sense. When the lights immediately went out and Aleister Black, now known as Malachi Black, showed up and hit Arn Anderson with a black mass right across the face. Cody ran in, but Black hit him with another black mass and the crowd went apoplectic. First of all, AEW did a great job swerving everyone with the lights turning out earlier in the Cody match as a technical difficulty which made it awesome when it happened again and you realized it was planned. And starting Black's run in AEW with Cody is a huge move. It's a bigger and better start than Andrade El Idolo is getting by comparison. And unlike others, I saw a lot of people tweet me about this, I didn't really have much of a problem with commentary screwing up his name because it was a surprise after all. And if you watched a vignette, a four-minute video package that Aleister Black actually put on social media... I kind of have a feeling he's going to be going by both names. Malachi Black being the character, but Tommy End being the person underneath the character. Now, this all came, as I said, after Black posted that video earlier in the day, reintroducing himself, a guy who has been captive in a mental institution for five years. That video actually teased the flickering lights and even a potential feud with Buddy Murphy, which I don't think would be a surprise if AEW signs Murphy. Now, Black showing up here in AEW is another instance of AEW taking full advantage of WWE's horrendous decision-making, terrible booking, and idiocy. It starts with WWE getting this guy totally over in NXT, making him nearly unbeatable when he debuts on Raw, and then basically forgetting to use him for six or seven months after an eye injury just kept him out for a couple of weeks. Then WWE Creative finally comes around to bringing him back, and they get it right. With awesome vignettes, a new character, and a huge moment in the main event of a SmackDown against Big E, where everyone is pumped up and excited to see Aleister Black back. 
only to fire him inside of the next week before the next edition of SmackDown can happen. And if that wasn't enough idiocy for you, PW Insider reported Wednesday night after Dynamite that WWE forgot to amend Black's contract when he moved over to Raw from NXT. So his non-compete clause was only 30 days instead of 90. So WWE took a guy from the Indies, got him over, gave him main roster rub, invested in a re-debut, got critical acclaim for the re-debut, then released him and handed him over to AEW with momentum at his back on a silver fucking platter. That is an own goal if I have ever seen one from a wrestling company. Now, some of you may disagree with what I'm about to say, but Black is AEW's first truly game-changing signing since John Moxley. You had Chris Jericho first, John Moxley second, and now, in my opinion, Malachi Black. Andrade, El Idolo, Miro, FTR, they're all good wrestlers. They're all good signings. Black is the total package. With the ability to have input and freedom with creative, he's going to be a huge star in AEW. And WWE is going to be regretting this for years. It was idiotic when they released him in the first place. But it looks even worse now. It's to the point where I wonder if this turns the tide in some ways for AEW. Not to necessarily beat WWE in the ratings. I'm not saying that. But to take that next step where they are consistently over 1 million viewers weekly and become a legitimate competitor in the industry, maybe even where their demo starts to compete and maybe occasionally beat Raw on Monday nights. They're not going to beat SmackDown on Friday. That is how big I think this is. That is how good of a job AEW did in using this momentum, having him keep the same or a similar character and ensuring that they debuted him as soon as they possibly could. Now, I got a DM slide from Nick Z at nzannyboney93. He asked, why do you think AEW doesn't ever end the show with big moments? The debut of Black should have been the last thing on TV tonight. So, okay, you have a point, right? I personally would have found a way to make this the main event and the final thing we saw with AEW going off the air. But it was tough for them to do that in this situation because Cody's match with QT was not main event caliber. So what I'd probably have done, if it was me, is not separate it from the opener. After Cody wins, you immediately do a post-match interview with him and Arn Anderson welcoming fans back. The lights go out a second time. Fans are like, okay, now it's not a coincidence. And boom, there's Malachi Black, two black masses. You're good to go. Then the show is off to a rip-roaring start. You've drummed up a ton of social media buzz and people start tuning in to watch the remaining hour and you know, 45 minutes, hour and a half. So yes, I would have positioned it differently. I thought it was the wrong part in the show, but I wouldn't have necessarily put it in the main event of this week because they had a main event title match already and you did want to debut him against Cody, which is a great decision. As I was putting the show together, I did realize one other thing. Every major WWE signing, ex-WWE signing, that has joined AEW except for one has come into the company as a heel. The one who did not, of course, was John Moxley. Those who did, Chris Jericho, FTR, 
Andrade, Miro, and now Malachi Black. That is something very interesting to consider. But top to bottom, I can't stress enough, Black is a massive signing, bigger than Miro, bigger than FTR, bigger than Andrade. He is third, in my opinion, only to Chris Jericho and John Moxley. Now let's move on with the rest of the show. Kenny Omega hit the ring and Don Callis ran down everyone he's defeated as AEW champion. The crowd chanted for Adam Page and Evil Uno came out with Dark Order to ask why they were ignoring Hangman. Omega kicked him in the junk. Dark Order brawled with Omega. The Good Brothers came out. Then Hangman ran in and cleared house and he had a chance to hit his finisher, but instead chose to stare Omega down. Then it kind of just ended. The crowd was super hot for Hangman, as one would expect, and it's clear AEW is going full speed ahead with this feud, presumably to have them fight at All Out. The question is whether their eventual match will be the climax with Hangman winning the AEW championship, or maybe just one more bump in the road before they have a short-term rematch one or two pay-per-views later. Either way, I thought it was great. The ending was a little bit weak. It could have used a little bit more. Uh, But other than that, it was a great way to kind of advance the feud without setting the match, without having them come to blows. That's the way you do it. AEW then announced out of nowhere that Jon Moxley will defend the IWGP United States Championship next week against G1 finalist Carl Anderson. This popped me in a major way. It's going to be great to see Machine Gun again. Anderson cut an awesome taped promo about the elite being angry that Mox is carrying a New Japan title when they're the one who made the titles and the company famous. And then the Good Brothers did their beat up John Cena line as beat up John Moxley. Everything about this announcement was great, but it was weird the casual way in which Jim Ross and AEW announced it because this should have been framed as huge news. I mean, you got Moxley against Carl Anderson for an IWGP title on American television. Jim Ross is like, oh, hey, by the way, we got a championship match next week. And like, it just kind of came out of nowhere. So JR, we could have used some enthusiasm or maybe we have Shivani or Excalibur do it next time. But the match announcement was great and I loved the video package. Let's move over to the main event, which was the tag team match, the Young Bucks defending their championships against Eddie Kingston and Penta El Zero M in a street fight. They brawled right away, and the match was basically tornado rules. Penta hit Matt Jackson with an insane Canadian destroyer off the ring apron through a table at ringside. And I would tell you it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen, except Penta's done that same move off of a ladder before. So we can't really say that, right? Uh, Nick then did a senton bomb into Kingston with a trash can. Kingston put Matt in a rear naked choke. So Nick avoided the finish by hitting a 450 splash, not on Kingston, but instead on the referee, Rick Knox instead of actually breaking the fall, right as Matt tapped. The Good Brothers came out, but Penta splashed them. Frankie Kazarian picked Brandon Cutler off the ring apron and powerbombed him through a table. The challengers hit Fear Factor and another spinning backfist, but the replacement referee was too late. The Good Brothers then took him out with the Magic Killer outside. Kingston dropped thumbtacks, and Nick hit Penta with the Huracarana into them. The Bucks threw thumbtacks into the challengers' faces, and they superkick Kingston with the thumbtacks before double covering him for the win. The match was high energy. It was exciting. But look, I'm just being honest. It was a total spot fest without any psychology. And the finish with the thumbtacks was convoluted when so many other weapons were used in the match. It was super entertaining. But I, I'm going to go with, I don't know, like 3.5 stars and a B. 
because I did find the MSK tag team match on NXT to be better, and I gave that four stars. And this just wasn't really there. So I'll go with 3.5 and a B, which is still a really good grade for a match. Let's not get it twisted. But I just didn't think that it being a spot fest really lent itself to a higher grade. That's just not how I do things. The other really big moment on the show was Chris Jericho and MJF had a sit down in the ring opposite of a table. The stupid uh, fan, there's a stupid idiot who tried to run in at the end of Jericho's song and he actually got caught by security. Jericho kind of popped him with one. A couple people chanted Y2J and Jericho squashed that. And he pissed MJF off by saying that he'd have sex with his mother. That was just kind of cheap. MJF said some stupid shit about Jericho no longer being in the key demo. And then he laid out his stipulation that Jericho must beat four guys in four stipulation matches before getting MJF in a fifth stipulation match. Jericho got really worked up. He signed the contract. But MJF, who has clearly been watching Django Unchained, because it's been on rerun all month, I think, on Showtime. He pulled the Calvin candy and he demanded a handshake. Jericho shook his hand and then he pulled him in for a Judas effect, basically playing the role of Dr. King Schultz. I took a minute to get that name. The segment was up and down, given the rough start with the fan, but it was strong in the end and Jericho was obviously super over. I liked when Cody had to run the gauntlet to fight MJF, and I'm sure that Jericho's run to do a similar thing is going to be even better. It's a great way to set up a month or two of interesting matches while continuing a storyline ahead of a pay-per-view. And it's clear that's what AEW is doing. They want Jericho to be on TV, in matches, in the storyline with MJF, but not actually have them fight and kind of take a lot of TV time as they still prepare for All Out. Jim Ross did a sit-down interview with Darby Allin and Ethan Page. Darby said he risked it all to make it in wrestling while Page was complacent being a big fish in a small pond. Paige said Darby was telling the truth, but he brought him into the business and he's going to take him out. This was a good interview segment. And my takeaway from it is that Paige for AEW is what NXT thought it was getting when it brought in LA Knight. He has that cool, cocky attitude. He's quite believable. And he's a really good wrestler. We had a six-man tag team match, Jake Hager, Santana, and Ortiz against Wardlow and FTR. Conan was in the inner circle corner. Late in the match, Hager demanded Wardlow enter. FTR illegally caught Hager with the big rig and Wardlow got the one, two, three. Conan hit Wardlow in the back afterward and Tully Blanchard took out his knee. I'm not purposely being short on this. It was a longer match, but I just didn't really find it that special or notable. Again, I really like Dynamite. I didn't really like the matches that we got on Wednesday and that's very odd. It's actually usually the opposite with me where the matches are great, but I don't love the storytelling. Again, just an opposite night. Pinnacle winning, though, was the right call to get some heat back on them after losing from Stadium Stampede. Britt Baker backstage said Tony Khan should feel terrible that Reba got injured last week because the match shouldn't have happened. Then she said he should enjoy the blood money of signing Andrade El Idolo, and maybe next time AEW can just run in Saudi Arabia. It was contrived, but it was a decent promo. We're back in front of fans, so hey folks, it's time for the WWE shots again. Let's get those cheap pops, right? AEW still punching up at WWE after two years. I mean, it was well-timed because the truth is WWE is probably going to announce a Saudi Arabia show before the year's out, I'm guessing around November or something like that. But man, like talk about just unnecessary punching up kind of bullshit that Britt Baker doesn't need to do. Here it is again. And again, back in front of fans, expect this to happen again going forward. 
Andrade El Idolo had his debut match in AEW against Matt Seidel. Andrade came out in a black leather mask. I believe it was referring to Black Mask, which is a villain in the DC comic universe. And he also wore a tearaway pinstripe suit. The pants stayed on as his ring gear with some patent leather boots that gave him an awesome look. Most of the match was in picture in picture during the commercial break. Andrade looked super fluid in the ring and he hit El Idolo, which is a hammerlock flatliner for the win. Don't love it as much as the hammerlock DDT, but I know that Ty Conti uses DD Ty, so my assumption is he wanted a different finisher. He then wrapped his belt around Seidel's wrists and locked him in a butterfly submission after the match. Andrade looked like a star and a main eventer, but other than it being an athletic match, there was kind of really nothing to it, and it didn't do much for me, but I did love Andrade's look, and I think that deserves uh, an extra shout out. Ricky Starks was in the ring with security, and he said he needed it because he wasn't officially cleared yet, and he was worried about Brian Cage attacking him. Taz said he doesn't need security since Team Taz is all one group, but Brian Cage ran down anyway and cleared out security. This all happened in a tape segment before the show. It was produced in a very weird way that didn't make me more excited for the FTW match, and I know that they wanted to promote it for next week, but if you're just going to give us that, then I would have just kept it off the show, or I would have aired the entire thing and not given us what I'm going to talk about right now. In a backstage segment, Sean Spears said he hit Sammy Guevara with a chair because he had an ego. Sammy then threw one at him off camera, and Spears telegraphed the entire thing by putting his hand up. There was a short video package later with Christian Cage and Matt Hardy previewing their match at Firefest. That also wasn't anything special. So I would have just nixed those from the show and allowed this Team Taz thing to go longer. Two more things here before we get out of AEW. Orange Cassie and Chris Statlander fought the Blade and the Bunny in a mixed tag team match. Brass Knuckles got taken away from Blade before the bell. Orange hit a Tornado DDT and Statlander followed with Area 451 on Blade. But Bunny pulled Orange out of the ring on the fall. Blade then pulled out another set of knucks and nailed Orange with it, but didn't cover. Statlander tagged in under the middle rope, which is illegal, but Aubrey Edwards allowed it for some reason, despite Aubrey being the good referee, the one who actually follows the rules. Uh, Statlander pushed Bunny into Blade and hit Big Bang Theory on Bunny for the win. I thought it was fine. The illegal tag and the finish and really the entire match was a little bit absurd, but there was some good wrestling and it was exciting. The fans liked it. And then lastly here, Dan Lambert, the owner of the famous American top team MMA trading academies that are based in South Florida, was in attendance all night with UFC fighters Amanda Nunes and Jorge Masvidal. They did a mock interview with him where he grabbed the mic immediately and entered the ring. He cut a pure heel promo about wrestling sucking since the 90s and really not just since the 90s, but since championship wrestling of Florida. He said AEW sucks also, and it's totally unwatchable while simultaneously giving all the AEW company lines about their mix of wrestling, old and young talent, the fans being so important, etc. So it was a really smart promo that I'm sure Tony Khan worked on with Dan Lambert, where he's like, okay, shit on us for all of the positives that we bring to the wrestling world. Anyway, Lance Archer came down to shut him up and Lambert ate a blackout to end the segment. For what it was, this thing totally delivered. Lambert cut a better heel promo than three-fourths of all wrestlers, and he has experience doing it because he actually once had a short-lived American Top Team stable in TNA. This is going to get AEW some mainstream combat sports press. I'm not sure whether it's going to lead to more or not. Again, they did do this previously in TNA. It's probably best that they don't try to do a faction or an angle or have MMA fighters wrestle, but 
AEW is clearly trying to make inroads with the MMA community by inviting the fighters to shows all the time. WWE seems to have some type of general working relationship or gentleman's agreement almost between Vince McMahon and Dana White, but those are the organizations. UFC fighters aren't really beholden to UFC the same way that WWE wrestlers are to WWE. So AEW trying to make inroads with some of the individual fighters is really interesting. And I wouldn't be surprised if sooner rather than later, we see at least one MMA fighter wind up in an AEW match. And maybe this is the start of it. For me, I just think it was a one-off because they were in South Florida and it all just kind of worked with Masvidal and Nunez both wanting to go to the show. But nevertheless, this was a really exciting addition, as I said, of AEW Dynamite. And considering what is upcoming with Fighter Fest Night 1, I think we're in for another huge show next Wednesday. AEW's ability to kind of capitalize off of this episode with a big one next week, it could really really catapult them. And again, don't be surprised if AEW starts pushing WWE Raw in particular from a demo standpoint going forward here. Um, I do think that this Aleister Black signing is bigger than a lot of people understand. Yes, he's not a mainstream name, but he's a big name in wrestling and he's an exceedingly talented wrestler. There are drawbacks to Miro. There's some drawbacks to Andrade. FTR, they're great in the ring, but are they really that exciting? Black is the entire package, just like John Moxley was before him. And think about the matches that are now possible. Black and Andrade, yeah, we've seen it before, but it's possible. Black and Moxley, Omega, Miro, Penta, Ray Phoenix, Pac. I mean, it's really tough to argue right now that AEW doesn't have the best men's roster in professional wrestling. And that's not to say that WWE doesn't have a ton of great superstars, because they do. But the potential for great matches exists at a greater plane right now in AEW than it does in WWE because there's so many different people and because they don't get watered down by seeing them wrestle the same matches on TV every week. Now, look, maybe this rejuvenation for AEW is a sign of things to come for wrestling as a whole. Maybe WWE is going to give us a rejuvenation once it starts touring again on July 16th. I will remind you that is the Silver King's birthday. Maybe with Becky Lynch coming back and uh, the draft changing brands and some new storylines, maybe creative is going to get a kick in the ass and WWE is going to realize that the shit that they've been giving us isn't going to suffice. But considering we're right at the tail end of a build for money in the bank and we're still getting that repetitive shit, I'm sorry. My hopes aren't as high as they were just a couple weeks ago when SmackDown and Raw gave us great back-to-back episodes. So it's just going to be really interesting to see how the entire wrestling landscape plays out between now and the end of 2021. We really have a six-month period where we're just going to have to see what happens with Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW. How does NJPW factor into the mix? They just announced the G1 Climax is going to be held in mid-September during American football season, which for the Silver King is actually pretty bad news. But all of this is going to be transpiring over the next six months. And I, for one, am extremely excited to see how all of it unfolds. As far as how this podcast is going to unfold over the next week, let me tell you what is coming up here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with our WWE Money in the Bank edition of the Getting 
over wrestling podcast. Isn't this the Money in the Bank edition? No, this riddle is not the Money in the Bank edition. That will be coming on Tuesday. That will be our ultimate preview. And then we will be back on Thursday with a full breakdown of NXT and night one of AEW Dynamite Fighter Fest. On Sunday, 30 minutes before the WWE Money in the Bank kickoff show, the Silver King, Vintage Chris Vanini, will have our own live kickoff show on Twitter spaces. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can listen on desktop mobile, the official Twitter app for iPhone and Android. And you can even join in and participate with us. Chris will be live at Money in the Bank. So we'll be talking to him, the equivalent, I guess, these days of via satellite. Again, 30 minutes before the WWE kickoff show. And then as soon as WWE Money in the Bank goes off the air Sunday night, the Silver King Vintage Chris Vanini, with Chris probably driving home from Money in the Bank, will convene for a special instant analysis episode, which I know you all love. So we have a ton of podcasting and wrestling talk coming your way next week. The way you can get it is by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and subscribing to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast wherever you are listening to the show right now. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Android, anywhere that has podcasts, you can find the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And please also do not forget what the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, which I know you did, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review to let people know not only how much you love the show, but why they should listen to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So with that, I will bid you adieu. I will see you all on Tuesday and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.